Well, lads, it seems that they've called in Mrs. Lian from the other house to run things here for a bit. So if she should happen to come round asking for anything, or have occasion to talk to you about anything, be sure to do what she says, won't you? During this coming month, we shall all have to start work a bit earlier and knock off a bit later than usual. If you'll put up with a little extra hardship just for this month, we can make up for it by taking things easy when it's over. Anyway, I'm relying on you not to let me down. She's well known for a sour-faced, hard-hearted bitch, this one. And once she's got her back up, she'll give no quarter, no matter who you are. So be careful. Welcome to another exciting installation of Rereading the Stone. I'm your host, Kevin Wilson, joined as always by William Jones. Hello. Will, how's it going today? Oh, fantastic. How about you? Another exciting day. Uh, everything is going excellent. This week, we're working on Chapter 14. Lin Ruhai is conveyed to his last resting place in Suzhou, and Jia Baoyu is presented to the Prince of Beijing at a roadside halt. Do you want to do uh, first impressions? This is, uh, I mean, this chapter is a lot about the preparations for Lady Qin, Qin Shi's funeral, and then the actual funeral procession itself. So it's quite wrapped up in uh, kind of like ritual and, 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 and ceremony, right? Mm. Yeah, for sure. We talked about how some chapters are more dreamlike, some chapters are more real. This one, to me, I think for the most part, is quite a kind of like real material world chapter. Um, whereas in the previous one, we had this whole kind of dream sequence where Wang Xifeng and Qian Shi are, are, are like speaking in a dream and, you know, all that stuff. Right. You know, I'm still, I would agree. I'm also feeling the interplay between reality and uh and the dream and the fantasy uh maybe the the kind of the intermediate the intermediary space this time is in this kind of the the ritual zone the zone of ritual and, and i have a few uh sort of theories about how to uh, conceive of ritual in this chapter as being this dual phenomenon where you have the uh the uh surface level ritual of the, the funerary uh, proceedings but you also have the ritual of you know the household hierarchy uh, and so maybe you would have on a sense uh, because Wang Shifeng uh, plays such a prominent role in this chapter I can imagine sort of um, there's almost a little bit of like Wang Shifeng ritual 
Right. Uh, and, and that's how that's how I'm trying to yeah how I'm trying to conceive of this space between uh, artifice and reality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we 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 um we see a lot of that the of the ritual of the hierarchy between the different members in the house. This is made very very apparent in this mm. in this chapter. Um, so I would say yeah, this, this chapter it, it's a little bit more challenging. Uh, it's not it's not really playful at all. Uh, there's a little bit of you know uh, toward the middle. Uh, Bao Yu comes, and you see a little bit of uh, at that moment uh, Shifeng kind of loosens up a bit, and, and you 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 are reminded that these are all you know still you know, people in the, in the, the freshness of youth, but overall, uh, there, there's this, there's this weight at the same time that, uh, Madame Yo is still sort of, she's apps. There's this like shadow in the background, this fog, this, this like cloud of, uh, of doubt and, uh, the uncertainty over what happened. Uh, and there's also something kind of there, there is something truly artificial about this chapter, about the whole the whole proceedings. At the same time, there is a, a sort of a sublime, a few sublime moments where I really want to bring out because the the language, especially in the original, is very evocative, uh, and we can kind of compare the original to the Hawks translation. So there are some things to talk about here, uh, although you know, it does feel like a dark chapter, and I kind of I miss the light a little bit. Uh, or the, the, it seems as if the only the only light we're getting is this kind of like secondhand yeah. uh, daylight coming from you know uh, lanterns and uh, solemn faces and, uh, and and consternation something like that that's what that's uh, that's how I would kind of characterize the chapter going in yeah I think that's about right it I uh, mean uh, inevitably it is solemn because it the subject matter is mostly funerary rites and all of the the kind of hard work that goes on in the background behind that um and you're right that this is reflected mm -hmm. in the the kind of imagery and the way the world is presented so before we dive in shall i give us just a quick recap on what happened last time that sounds great yeah so um what had happened before this is just by way of recap the kind of central family is the 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 jia clan and it has these two main branches the rong branch and the ning branch and we learn that there is one of the kind of young women of the wrong branch, Lin Dayu. Her mother was a member of the Jia clan. And she, the mother, married a man called Lin Ruhai. And they moved down to southern China. And that's where she was raised. Um, then her mother died. And so she moved to Beijing to join the rest of the Jia clan um, to live there. <clears throat> and her father, Lin Ruhai, has now fallen sick. And so she's returning south to visit him in his sickness. And because she's just, uh, you know, she's just a teenage girl, really. She is accompanied by another man of the Jia clan, uh, Jia Lian, the husband of Wang Xifeng, who we've encountered many times over. She's one of the kind of prominent young women of the wrong branch of the Jia clan. She is kind of responsible basically for like household management, making decisions about where money goes, which servants do what, how the whole household is kind of run. So Wang Xifeng is now deprived of her husband, and so she is in this kind of state of sort of boredom and ennui. Um, and one evening, while snuggled up in bed, she has a, a kind of dream where she sees Lady Qin, 
this Qin Shi or Qin Keqing, as she's known, uh, who's a, a young woman of the the Ning branch of the Jia clan, so the other the other branch of the family, and she is also part of that that clan by marriage. She's married to a young man called uh, Jia Rong, and the two of them are good friends. Anyway, Qin Shi has at this point been. Mm-hmm been ill for quite a long time with a sort of mystery disease that no doctor has been able to cure and people are worried that uh you know she may just you know give into the illness and die uh, at any time and in this dream that's what she tells Wang Shifeng she says you know before I depart I've come to see you one more time and she gives her this kind of mystical message about how the whole Jia clan is facing a downfall you know it's facing hard times it's it's, it's had a good run they're an illustrious family at the moment but you know those good times can't last and so in order to avoid total destruction what they need to do is buy up a lot of land and kind of put it in a sort of charitable trust uh so the proceeds of those charitable of that charitable trust can go towards funding the appropriate kind of ritual um offerings to their ancestors and a clan school for the proper education of the men of the clan. If they can arrange these two things, then, you know, the Jia clan will avoid total destruction. Then she disappears, and lo and behold, at that exact moment, it's announced that Qin Shi has died. So the rest of the chapter is basically taken up with people's reaction to her death, and the preparations for her funeral, and all of those kind of rites. And uh, we focus particularly on Jia Zhen, who is the father-in-law of the of the deceased woman, and it's suggested that he and his daughter-in-law were having an affair, um, and that you know, although she appears to die of natural causes in an earlier draft of the book, she may in fact have hanged herself in in shame over this um, over this affair. Um, and so Jia Zhen, her father-in-law, is very affected and very upset at her death. Um, he he goes out, he buys her this incredibly um, fancy coffin, you know, with incredibly high quality coffin wood that's really, you know, fit for a prince. He arranges for a very grand funerary kind of rites and ceremonies with, you know, Buddhist monks and Taoist priests uh, doing kind of chants and offerings. And he goes out and he buys a, a kind of ceremonial title for his son, Jia Rong, who was Qin Shi's husband. He buys him the ceremonial title, which is a kind of military rank, so that in the kind of funeral announcements, uh, he will seem kind of suitably impressive, because otherwise it will just say, you know, that he's a he's a student of the imperial school and, and nothing else. And then also uh, we find out that Yao Shi, who is um, the mother-in-law of the of the of the dead woman, she's had a recurrence of her old illness, uh, which has kind of kept her in bed this whole time. And so consequently, there is no lady of the house. And Jia Zhen is very worried that because there's no lady of the house to run things, that this is going to reflect badly on them um, at a time when they need to be putting on their best face. So he asks Wang Xifeng from the Rong branch of the clan to step into that role. And she, you know, willingly, uh, enthusiastically accepts. Uh, and so that's pretty much where we leave it with, with her having accepted this post. Uh, and then in the coming chapter, we find out a bit about how she uh, adapts to that role, how she kind of puts her stamp on the Ning branch of the clan. And we have a bit more about the funerary rites um, and the funeral itself. Um, and it ends with 
Jia Baoyu, who is our protagonist. Uh, he's one of the young men of the wrong branch of the Jia clan. And he's a kind of teenage boy at this point. Uh, it ends with him meeting the prince of Beijing, uh, a kind of royal prince and, and famously rather kind of dashing and clever, um, meeting him during the, the, the funerary processions. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. And, and so let's jump right into this and let's not feel um, obliged to treat every single detail. I, I think we can give the general, the gist of this chapter and kind of just pick and choose the things that we think are the most poignant or, or salient. Yeah, I agree. I I think we can get a good sense of it from um, the way that... I think the first thing to look at is how does Wang Xifeng impose herself upon the Ning household in her new role as kind of lady of the house? And so she comes in and she says, you know, look, maybe you've done things differently in the past, but you're going to do it my way now. It's going to be like this. You know, here are the rules. If you disobey any of these rules... I will come down on you like a ton of bricks, kind of thing. So she's a real kind of disciplinarian. So she starts out by dividing up the servants into different groups and giving those different groups different responsibilities. So some of them are responsible for serving tea and nothing else. And some of them are responsible for serving meals and nothing else. And some of them are responsible for assisting with making the offerings, you know, topping up the the oil lamps or... Um, helping to make the appropriate bows and and kowtows and so on and so forth. You know, I was really struck by, yeah, it's almost like a proto-factory system. There's a real emphasis on uh, like a division of labor. And it it seems to be partly based on a uh, a drive toward efficiency and and toward transparency, uh, accountability, right? Uh, But at the same time, you can just tell that she gets a kind of uh, a zeal, a certain uh, she's a passion for for order and division and everything being in its place. Uh, And and so it's really kind of uh, unsettling. I I tend to think that, you know, the people who are most uh, predisposed toward uh, positions of power or the last people you should actually uh, give power. I, I think, like, if you're if you're not uncomfortable with power, you probably shouldn't be wielding it. That's my kind of uh, that's a sort of reflexive logic, right? Uh, and so it's uh, I, it, I was really uncomfortable, like, just seeing, like, oh no, like you know, this is the, the you know, it's 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 beginning, you know, it's <laughs> it's funny when you talk about the kind of drive for efficiency because it does remind me a bit of like very modern business practices. Um, we were joking about it in the last uh, chapter when Qian Shi was telling her that she needs to put a whole bunch of land in a charitable estate so that even if all of their other property is confiscated, that will be left untouched. And how that's kind of like, a, it's a slightly kind of modern take, I suppose, on it, but it does have so much resonance in the present day, you know, of uh, your kind of millionaires and billionaires putting their assets in a, in a you know, Cayman, a Cayman Islands trust company or whatever offshore bank account or yeah 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 and this kind of is is similar to me because she's she's kind of like the the mckinsey or you know bain who's kind of come in and uh introducing new like efficiency drives you know yeah she's she's part of like you know rongguo uh like capital management or something she's a private equity she's private equity 
Yeah. And she is introducing new uh, new forms of oversight and accountability. Well, yeah, because she says, you know, if 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 uh, if you break or you lose any of the the kind of cups and plates and things, then it will come straight out of your wages. You know, and these are you know these are relatively uh, disempowered uh, you know maids and quasi slaves, basically. It's like, you know, she's basically introducing, you know, she might as well have like a company store. Yeah, precisely. And so, and you, at the same time, though, this whole funeral proceeding, which we're about to describe, it's completely excessive. It's completely out of line with the actual, even if you were to go by like the the Confucian etiquette principle where, you know, yeah, you know, people in power should, according to this system enjoy more lavish burial arrangements you know but it's even it's it's not only is it an an unequal system it's you know a like a a crude um, manipulation of that system uh and so at the same time to be so um to look so closely at these like these small affairs but while also in the process of you know engaging in this completely excessive enterprise uh I can't believe I I can't believe I mean yeah we can we can assume that this is the author's uh intention to uh really showcase this contrast and I I think contradiction even yeah I think I think that's absolutely right um I think it's good to draw that contrast between on the one hand this obsessive attention to detail with very very small things like a broken teacup uh, and the cost of replacing it compared to the kind of unimaginable extravagance of the of the funeral uh, i mean we learned in the previous chapter that when jia jun the the father-in-law of the of the dead woman he decides that his son doesn't have this like he doesn't have an appropriately important sounding title and so he buys him one basically and the cost of buying him one is a thousand tails of silver. And the only thing we have for comparison uh, as to how much a thousand tails of silver is, is the cost of Chinshu's uh, mm-hmm. coffin. So the, the coffin is this, it's made of this incredibly rare, very fine wood. Um, and when Jia Zhen offers to buy it, the the man selling it, Xuepan, who is a, another man of the of the wrong household, uh, he says you couldn't buy this even for a thousand tails of silver. So the only reference we have for it is that a thousand tails of silver is a an, a really significant amount of money. Uh, in this case, he actually more or less donates it to him as a gesture of possibly charity, but we think that there might be some quid pro quo down the down the line. But yeah, all we know is that a thousand tails of silver is a is a very significant amount of money. And Jia Jun is willing to spend that much on what we think is essentially a ceremonial title. I, I don't know if this this military role that he buys for his son comes with any salary or comes with any, you know, real duties or power. And so, yeah, we have that kind of incredible extravagance on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have, you know, fussing over, making sure the servants, you know, don't break any teacups or, or, or plates or anything. And if they do, they have to pay for it themselves when the cost of that must be minuscule by comparison. Exactly. I think, I, I really think that's kind of the, uh, the, yeah, the contrast that the author is trying to highlight here. Um, so that's, I, I feel like we, we've said what we, 
we, we've said our piece. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the 35th. Um, so there's a really kind of excellent description of uh, what happens on the 35th day. And this, this is a kind of, a, I believe this is 35 days after she has passed away, after Lady Chin has passed away. Is that a correct reading? Uh, that was my understanding, yeah. So there's a there's a 49-day period between right. her death and the, the funeral and itself. And the funeral, okay. So this is the 35th day, uh, which is denoted in the text uh, as uh, Wu Qi, so uh, five sevens. Yeah. And so the, I, I do believe there is kind of a, some kind of a geomancy correlative logic at work here. Uh, and there's this really wonderful description of some of the underlying uh, Buddhist and Taoist cosmology. So I, I want to read the passage here. So, okay, so it's been 35 days. The 35th has now arrived. An important day in the penitential cycle of seven times seven days preceding the funeral. And the monks in the main hall had reached a particularly dramatic part of their ceremonies. Having opened up a way for the imprisoned souls, the chief celebrant had succeeded by means of spells and incantations in breaking open the gates of heaven. He had shown his light, a little hand mirror, for the souls in darkness. He had confronted Yama, the judge of the dead, which is uh, Yanjun in the original, the judge of the dead. He had seized the demon torturers who resisted his progress. He had invoked Sitigarba, the savior king, which is Di Zhang Wang in the, in the Chinese, to aid him. He had raised up a golden bridge, and now, by means of a little flag, which he held aloft in one hand, was conducting it over those souls from the very deepest pit of hell, who still remained undelivered. Uh, so you have this wonderful, kind of really evocative passage. I, I think it'd be really fun to, really interesting to watch this, uh, this kind of um, ceremony. So it's pretty stirring stuff. Yes, he's an actor. Yeah, so he he is acting out some kind of um, a ceremonial playing out of this yeah this this kind of bizarre battle with various kinds of uh, Buddhist kind of god or demon like figures. But specifically, I, I believe demons associated with the underworld. It's as if he's clearing the path for uh, Chinka Ching's soul to travel uh, unimpeded. Yeah. To you know the the nether world uh and so you know because there, there's always bad you know demons and so on and so forth and they might you know it reminds me actually of what we saw in chapter five in the dream chapter right which was which again was chin kaching she was there and so we, we remember the yakshas mm. uh grabbing at uh bao yu's leg uh this is, this is kind of a similar thing uh a similar kind of um perilous journey that has to be traveled i do think it's slightly funny you know the chief celebrant had succeeded by means of spells and incantations in breaking open the gates of hell you think oh well, that's lucky thank god he didn't fail but <laughs> but because it's him just play act, kind of acting on his on his own you kind of assume that it, it's just a strange way to describe it i suppose because surely there's no way that he could fail because it's him well if you don't pay enough maybe he does fail sometimes if you don't buy the premium package, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe he rolls a rolls a dice, and you know, and so then this the savior king, this uh, Di Zhang Wang, which is a kind of a earth 
treasury, the king of the earth treasury. Uh, so you imagine some kind of, um, yeah, like a, an underground being, but I, I guess he is a good one. He's, he stores the treasure. And so you can imagine that there's a lot of these kind of different images coming from different traditions, and they're kind of bringing them together in this synthetic system to make a, a coherent or at least semi-coherent narrative. There's a few other... This goes on for a little while. I, I, I guess I could, I could read a little bit more. How about... Yeah. Meanwhile, and so those were all the, the Buddhist images. And now we're going to learn about what's going on in the Taoist universe, the parallel Taoist universe, where it says, Meanwhile, 99 Taoists in the Celestial Fragrance Pavilion were on their knees offering up a written petition to the three pure ones. And, and, and that's... Uh, San Qing, so the three, the three pure, the three Qing, and was calling on the Jade Emperor himself in his heavenly palace. Outside, on their high staging, was swinging of censers and scattering of little cakes for the hungry ghosts to feed on. Chan monks were performing the great water penitential, uh, and in the shrine where the where the coffin stood, six young monks, six young nuns, magnificently attired in scarlet slippers and embroidered, embroidered copes sat before the spirit tablet, quietly murmuring the Dharani that would assist the soul of the dead woman on the most difficult part of its journey into the underworld. Everywhere, there was a hum of activity. And so you, you can see it's, it's a very uh, detailed and evocative description. It's interesting to me that these are several different kind of faith or religious traditions operating at once. It's interesting to me that they should happen all to kind of coincide on this one single day. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know the reason for that, but clearly for each one of them, that the day has this kind of similar significance. It, uh, it resonates with what we saw earlier with the, the Buddhist and the Taoist priests walking hand in hand, seemingly uh, not enemies, but um, fellow travelers. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And and so that that is a little bit distinct from what we imagine as these, you know, these religions being mutually exclusive and uh, vying for supremacy constantly. Right. That's kind of a modern and, and very Western uh, imposition, I think. Exactly. Yeah. It, it is fascinating, though, isn't it? Yeah. So the you've got the this Buddha celebrant acting out his descent into the underworld and battle with various demons. You've got the Taoists appealing to the three pure ones and the jade emperor you have the the chan the chan monks scattering cakes and, and and incense and then you have these other nuns and monks murmuring this darani um and you can see how elaborate how many people are involved it sounds as if there is hundreds of people dedicated to this one funeral yeah um and a great noise you know and all different sorts of noise as well you know and so it's very moving but i think it's also kind of ridiculous i think it's meant to be it's meant to seem ridiculous that uh and maybe again a, a kind of overcompensation for for who knows what mm -hmm. as it were and that that really that almost that almost adds an an a, a true uncanny you know even if you don't even if you aren't um taken with supernatural imagery the fact that there would be so much effort to uh direct attention away from some potentially uh, nebulous human behavior, it almost gives that human behavior a kind of a sort of like a evil aura. That's kind of how mm -hmm. I'm imagining 
And so speaking of the uncanny, I wanted to just one one more kind of a line from this from this section of the text that uh, I thought was really evocative, probably my favorite image of the whole of the whole chapter. And so it's very early in the morning, but the text reads, the great gate of the Ningguo mansion was hung with lanterns and there were rows of identical standard lanterns on each side of the gateway, illuminating the entrance with the brightness of noonday and eerily emphasizing the whiteness of the morning clothes worn by the men servants lined up to receive the carriage. In the original, uh, it, it reads, Zhao Ru Bai Zhou, Bai Wang Wang Chun Shao Jaren. Which, which uh, it's really interesting. I, I was really taken with this, um, this, uh, this image of the, of the Bai Wang Wang, uh, which seems to be is suggestive of, um, of a kind of overflowing, often of water. And it also seems to have an onomatopoetic dimension to it. And so you have this, it's, it's very early in the morning. You, you can imagine it's still like, it's still probably mostly or completely dark outside, but because there's so many of these uh, white lanterns and there's also these, uh, everyone's wearing this white uh, morning garb that it, it's just the whole scene is, is, uh, is like, it's like soaked with, uh, with like white reflective light. Uh, Can we talk about white briefly? You in particular talks about this on 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 previous uh, episodes that red as a color in Chinese has some different connotations to red in uh, English or just red in other cultures, right? You know, it it can carry very different uh, symbolic or representative meanings, and white here is a really like an interesting contrast as well, right? Because white in the sort of western christian canon i suppose is is purity hence why wedding dresses are white you know originally symbolic of purity and i i suppose virginity and so the the colors that you would wear to a funeral in the west are black more than anything else because black and is is somber is death is sort of solemnity mm-hmm. whereas here white is the color of death right mm-hmm. in the in the chinese kind of folk and religious tradition white is you wear red the bride wears red to a wedding white is the color of funerals and and mourning right and and i think it's just important to observe that because as you've correctly pointed out the thing that really shines out of this is whiteness right is the color is a bright white uh, almost overwhelming white and the symbolism behind that white is is death is 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 the funeral is kind of grief right you know I, I would say that yeah it's it's very challenging to proceed here because you have this really dynamic dialect color dialectic uh at the same time that sometimes you will have one color representing you know two oppositional forms so the fact that sometimes white will represent life does not mean that in other contexts white can't also represent uh, death, right? And s- simultaneously, uh, you could have um, there's something else going on in this chapter. Where you, you probably notice on a few occasions they mention green clothing. It, in, it's in the original, it's Ching uh, Yi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the the twist there is that there seems to be some indication that when they're using Ching Yi there, 
it means uh, almost like a black clothing. Uh, and so again, we have this, uh, this really topsy-turvy referential space. But I would say, yeah, uh, there, there's almost no uh, reference to red in this chapter, except for one, uh, one kind of passing remark where they mention that, you know, everyone is so sad. Every, everything is so somber, except for Wang Shifeng. And I think in the, in the Hawks translation, it's something like she's a, a spot of scarlet in a sea of green. Yeah, I actually have it. I have it here. So this is at a later stage talking about, uh, I think it's the night before the funeral, but it's essentially a lot of guests. Mm-hmm. And she, although she is very tired um, and, you know, has been working hard for a long time at this point and presumably not in the mood to play hostess, she you know, nonetheless kind of pulls herself together and, and feel, feels the need to kind of work the room, as it were, you know, kind of go around, talk to people, make sure that everybody's, you know, properly being looked after. Uh, and all the other women of the household are, as you said, exactly that kind of somber, downcast, not really lively. And exactly, the, the Chinese is wan lu cong zhong yi dian hong. So exactly like a drop of red among 10,000 greens. And so you wonder there, you know, um, it's it's interesting because we've already had this association with Wang Shifeng and red and fire and the phoenix. And so it seems to be kind of uh, that association is uh, reinstantiated in this chapter, just for that one, the one passing moment. Um, and, and so... And so, yeah, I would say uh, I've also been thinking lately that sometimes even, you know, we're so used to associating green with with spring and vitality. Uh, we haven't actually talked about how in a few in, in a few places in the text, green uh, appears specifically in a religious context. So actually, if you go back to Chapter five and the poem dedicated to uh, Miao Yu, they mention um, the uh, the Qingdeng, the green light, which was a, a, tra- a traditional Buddhist image, which in the poem in question, the idea was rather than, you know, live life directly and experience, you know, the uh, all the colors of spring. Instead, she uh, has dedicated herself to, you know, this eerie green light, in effect. She's the green lantern. The green, I mean, <laughs> no, okay, just, yeah, uh, and, and, and so, but it, but it, it just it, like I just meant that as a way of demonstrating how differently, like in a rather trite way, how differently the same image can be presented in different cultural contexts, right? Although I would say, even if, if there is a different, you know, even if the green light for Gatsby is not the same as the green light for Miao Yu, I still think the very fact that there are these, uh, this kind of like over proliferation of associations and you know even in some cultures you have you know rainbows designating death you know or being unlucky inauspicious symbols like sometimes people will bring out these details and they'll be like well don't you see that you know there really aren't any correlations or or like structuralism is false or you know all, all these kinds of like kind of crude uh in my opinion kind of like fake negations of of this kind of um mm. of this kind of cr- correlative logic uh but the response to that is that no you know the very fact that there are even within one culture this uh multitude of associations that's what gives 
artists and and even just like creative thinkers you know that that gives them a space to you know sort of to choose which correlation to emphasize what to foreground what to place in the background uh and that's that's a space in which artwork is created and and meaning is reinterpreted and so on and so forth um and so that's my kind of like that's the way i i like uh would want to have people deal with you know a, a pretty complex system where it's it's always clear what's happening you know what the the, the eerie whiteness of the morning clothes the break of dawn before the funeral what exactly that's supposed to convey you know maybe the author just remembers it and he just wants to preserve that memory and he doesn't know why um it affected him as it did but he just wants to share it with somebody you know 